Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to the Rothko Chapel. It's a privilege to be here tonight presenting this program, Art and Activism, in partnership with the Houston Grand Opera, in conjunction with their initiative, Seeking the Human Spirit. We've been in conversation with Houston Grand Opera over the past two years as they've been developing this new initiative that celebrates the deep connection between music and what makes us human. Through Seeking the Human Spirit, HGO is seeking to use the art form of opera as a form to allow us to understand our differences, illuminate what unites us, and reveal insights into human nature. The initiative kicked off this past fall, and over the next six years, in addition to producing a series of operas that address broad spiritual themes such as sacrifice, transformation, and identity, HGO is partnering with organizations around the city to present an array of projects and activities. We're honored to be one of these partnering sites, and for this first year's collaboration, we chose to tie this pro program into the human rights component of our mission by exploring the intersection of art and activism with special focus on performing arts and opera. There's more information about the initiative in your printed programs, and we invite you to visit their website, hgo.org slash humanspirit. I'd like to lift up some of the HGO staff who I've worked very closely with in planning this program, Paul Hopper and Judith Kernick, and my colleague, Kelly Johnson. Tonight's program will... Yes, thank you. Tonight's program will include a short address from each of the conversationalists, a moderated discussion with Rothko Chapel's executive director, David Leslie, and a short period for Q&A. We then invite you all into the plaza for a reception where you can continue the conversation. Before we begin, I do have a little bit of housekeeping. I ask that you please take a moment to turn off your cell phones and refrain from any photography. Know that this entire program will be documented and available on our website. So please now join me in welcoming David Leslie, who will introduce the panel. Well, thank you all very much for coming. And I want to do one other part of housekeeping is uh, I really want to recognize the work that uh, Ashley Clemmer does on behalf of the chapel. Ashley's our director of public programs and community engagement. and. Uh, uh, brings her curatorial skills to all kinds of things. So could we honor uh, Ashley for all her work? Thank you. And uh, another thing, we uh, to run the Rothko Chapel is really a village. And I also want to recognize, you'll see when you came in, you were greeted by host and by our chapel staff. And we have a guild of about 50 volunteers that come in and serve on the weekends and the evenings. So let's give them all a big Absolutely. round of applause. Thank you. So with that, let's just jump into the program. As we know well here at the Rothko Chapel, as we live at the intersection of art, spirituality, and human rights, the arts play an important interpretive and connecting role in society in ways that other sectors simply cannot. Opera, Peter Sellers has said, uses music, poetry, dance, and visual arts to draw the widest range of people together, people who are wired in different ways, it then puts him inside rather than outside of the experience. Artists, as we well know, can move through a variety of environments to address difficult topics, challenge cultural stigmas, bring diverse people together and provoke new ways of thinking 
that can lead to powerful social and political changes. In this time of, I think, characterized by amazing growth and diversity in the creative sector, we are still living at the same time where we find censorship, political bullying, and polarization and wedge driving between people. And in that intersection, questions such as how are arts interpreting and shaping culture become very important. What is the role of art as commentator and catalyst for social justice? And what is the responsibility of cultural institutions, patrons, and really all of us for preserving the arts as a voice for the public? To help us explore these issues this evening, it's my pleasure to present to you our panelists for tonight in the order in which they will give their opening remarks. Now, I want to say that it's always that awkward moment because the, their bios are printed in the program, but I do want to lift up a couple of uh, things about each of them because it's really important to me because I just think they're great people and you ought to think they're great too. But I, uh, I, uh, Patrick's going to start off, Patrick Summers, who was named Artistic and Music Director at HGO in 2011 after having served as the company's music director since 1998. He's conducted more than 60 operas at HGO and has been responsible for many important artistic advances, including the development of the HGO Orchestra. And I also want to say personally, one of the funnest things I've done in the last couple of years is the work with Sunlight Emerges with HGO Co. Mm -hmm. that we did about the Rothko Chapel and Dominic just a year ago. Mm -hmm. a year ago. And we had a wonderful program talk back here. And so it's just great to be able to share the stage again with HGO here at the chapel. Uh, the other thing, Maestro Summers is the principal guest conductor for the San Francisco Opera, where he was honored in 2015 with the company's highest honor, the San Francisco Order Medal, Opera Medal. Following Patrick will be Debbie McNulty, who's the director of Mayor Turner's Office of Cultural Affairs, a true public servant. And some days, public servants do not get the recognition they deserve. So I want to say right out, right here, is I really appreciate your work on the, on the public side of life, because it doesn't always get the attention it needs. Um, also, uh, Debbie has just a deep understanding and involvement in Houston's arts scene here having been uh, real involved in the philanthropic, the private sector side, the public side. She's former uh, director, program officer at the Houston Endowment where she dealt with arts and culture, and then also worked with the director of the Civic Art and Design Program at the Cultural Arts Council of Houston, which is now, I guess, Houston Arts Alliance. So as that has morphed into a new uh, iteration, but Debbie, thanks for bringing your experience with us tonight. And our final uh, presenter will be Peter Sellers, who's a renowned opera and theater director, a distinguished professor in the Department of Rural Arts and Culture at UCLA, a professor at UCLA. Now, Peter, I know that we talked before about uh, recording things and holding things for all times. Uh, should I, should I not tell how you operate your class on the grading scale, or is that be better to hold that off for hold another? Hold that off for a little bit. Or we'll just hold that one off. Um, if you're looking for a great class, though, it's Peter's class at UCLA Absolutely. if you find yourself that way. Uh, Peter's gained an international renown for his groundbreaking and transformative interpretation of artistic masterpieces and for collaborative projects with an extraordinary range of creative art artists. He's a resident curator of the Telluride Film Festival and was a member of the Rolex Arts Initiative. He's a prize winner 
and somebody who, uh, if you meet him, you think you know him from the day you meet him. He's just a great individual who makes what I think we're really here to do tonight. He makes the art so accessible to everybody. So Peter, thank you for taking time to be with us today. So with that, what we've asked each of the three panelists to do is open up with their reflections on the following questions. From each of your positions and unique perspectives, what does art and activism mean to you and how did you come to this moment, that kind of aha uh, moment in your life? And then, and this is really the important public side of the engagement, what conversations in the public square are desperately needed? I use that word, use that word very intentionally, desperately needed at this time that are best facilitated or provoked by the arts. Patrick. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here, and I, I mean that very literally. I'm thrilled to be here in this space. Um, I'm so happy that David is bringing activism back into the mission of the chapel because the, the Seeking the Human Spirit initiative at Houston Grand Opera uh, drew a great deal of inspiration from this building, from the Rothko, and from Dominique de Menil herself. I was in here alone one time, I come here a lot, uh, and I, um, I was in here for quite some time alone, and after a while, three people came in, a, a grandma, grandpa, and an 11 or 12 year old girl. And, and the grandfather was having nothing of the Rothko chapel. Uh, he was, where's, the, where's the cross, where's the paintings, what kind of chapel is this, all, you know, all that stuff. And, um, and I noticed the young girl go to that painting, which is my favorite one in here of, of many. And I, I noticed that she was brimming with tears over there at that painting. And her grandmother uh, went over behind her, not seeing her uh, in tears. And uh, her grandmother looked up at the painting and rather dismissively said, uh, well, I suppose it means something. And the little girl, unforgettably, for an aha moment for me, turned around to her grandmother and uh, looked up at her and said, it means everything. And to me, uh, it taught me a great deal about never trying to predict the effect of art, because you really never know where it will affect someone. All art, visual or performing, seeks the human spirit, but our initiative hopes to ignite some unexpected conversations about the role of art in a community like this uh, by partnering with organizations like the Rothko, the MFAH, the Women's Home, the Menil Collection, Methodist Hospital, Sacred Sites Quest, and hopefully others to view our old art form in a new way. Music is such a vibrant spiritual force for a lot of famous reasons. Music organizes silence and is a creative response to nature. But the most obvious link between spirituality and music, and this is what's very important to me at this point in my career, is that music itself is a creation. And so it feels inspired by some larger force, however one chooses to, to define that expansion. Separating political activism from opera is at one level impossible because so many of the works we regularly perform have political messages embedded within them by their composers. But their historical contexts 
uh, have often changed so much that we don't necessarily view them politically anymore. The Marriage of Figaro, for example, was considered dangerous when it was written because it had the first depiction of a servant saying no to royalty. But Mozart and de Ponte's great opera doesn't often come across as political now to us, except perhaps when famously staged by uh, Peter Sellers. <laughs> uh, Bellini's Norma, which we're about to perform, would have been seen by a thinking person at its premiere in 1830, not only as a Medea-inspired romantic opera, but as a statement on the Austro-Hungarian occupation of Italy. As an art, opera is perhaps better at raising questions of social justice than of politics. And we are just about to perform two operas with strong and moving social justice themes, West Side Story and Cruzar la Cara de la Luna, To Cross the Face of the Moon, each of which in their different ways deal with issues of the polarizing effect of immigration on families. As far as anyone can tell, opera has only directly affected politics one time. Uh, during an 1830 performance in Brussels of a now completely forgotten opera by Daniel Aubert, La Muette de Portici, The Mute Girl of Portici. And this opera had, at the time, a very famous patriotic duet in the second act. And during that duet, rioters stopped the performance, uh, carried the cast members out into the streets of Brussels, still singing that duet, and they joined with a mob protesting uh, Belgium's um, independence from France, and obviously they got what they were looking for. <laughs> it uh, that's the only time that I can think of that, that opera has directly affected the history of politics. Large arts, arts organizations have many constituents, and thus they have many interlocking goals. And in thinking about activism, it is important to remember them. The performing arts have an inviolable triangle, and we have to be committed to all three of its points equally. Creators, recreators, and audience. Put another way, the idea, its realization, and its effect. But we also have to recognize that most of the works of the standard canon were written by privileged white men for privileged white audiences. So we have an ethical duty to address that imbalance going forward and address it on a number of levels, as well as to challenge the inevitable resistance to that duty, because to the long privileged, equality can feel like some distorted version of oppression. Our opportunities to learn about the arts equitably distributed? Are the arts accessible and inviting? Are new operas representative and relevant? The cultural cliches about opera are persistent. That we are elitist, that you have to dress up to come to us, that you won't <laughs> understand it when you get there, and we have to work as an organization tirelessly to break down those barriers. We also have to expand our definitions of what opera is because this is an art form that's been far too narrowly defined, sometimes especially by those who love it the most. These are questions we grapple with all the time, especially as arts companies now find themselves at the apex of this current cultural shift away from institutions 
and a broadly general distrust of expertise. Total regular arts attendance in the United States, performing arts attendance, peaked in 1982 across the country and peaked in 1987 here in Houston. The last time a classical musician was on the cover of Time magazine was 1986, which may be indicative of nothing or everything depending on your view of the media. Uh, the classical recording industry used to fuel attendance at live performances, but the decline of the recording industry from the mid-1980s to the end of the century and the move into digital recording over the last 18 years has left a void of broad recognition by the public of classical artists with nothing so far as an equal replacement for it. Anything resembling a rigorous critical culture has largely now cocooned itself away online. I define a rigorous critical culture as arts criticism that ignites real dialogue between the public and the art, and which is historically informed, well-argued, and engagingly written. A soundbite culture won't be affected by activism. It will just more vehemently hold its tribal positions. It's also important to remember that institutions like Houston Grand Opera are, are charged with both honoring a beloved tradition and creating a sustainable atmosphere for the vision of what the art may become. And these are two goals that need to complement each other and not compete. Institutions are not the art. It's difficult to really contemplate activism in art and not talk very briefly and, and ending my remarks here, uh, talking about the infuriating contradictions of the composer Richard Wagner, uh, whose operas still dominate the repertoire of all of the world's major opera companies. And he really represents the great dichotomy of activism in an artist. Now, Wagner happily accepted the patronage and affection of a homosexual king, uh, even while Wagner himself publicly demeaned homosexuals, apparently seeing no moral problem with his own duplicity. Wagner was abhorrently anti-Semitic, railing in public against Jewish musicians who had actively made his own career possible. Uh, like Giacomo Meyerbeer and Hans von Bülow, who despite their artistic generosity to Wagner, were repaid with his hatred. Wagner didn't attend his own wife's funeral. But there was another Wagner, too, and it is this Wagner who inspires and feeds the intellect and the heart, and will hopefully continue to do so for as long as empathic people seek him out. This is the Wagner who composed the luscious Wesendonck songs and who spent nearly three decades of his life writing The Ring, one of the profoundest works of art we have. There is Wagner the poet, librettist, which is how he classified himself. He didn't like to be called a composer. Um, his libretti alone stand at the peak of cultural achievement, meaning that he would have been a giant had he never written a note of music. So it must give us hope that someone so simultaneously brilliant and so awful could create such humanizing mirrors as his great music dramas. Ideas, ideas about activism bring a lot of contradictions, as you'll hear tonight. 
And if I disagree with Wagner on every social issue that he ever made, every social point he ever made, I do embrace his statement that art exists as the pure expression of a free community's joy in itself. And in that spirit, I look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Debbie? Thanks for starting us off strong. <laughs> <laughs> I generally see art and activism related on a continuum in a sense that all art, all art making is a form of activism on one end and what is described often as activist art is on another end. And it, I described it as a linear, but I can also see it as a Venn diagram. Um, Activism seeks to bring about or hinder political or social change. Art is also about change because it seeks to shift something in the viewer. Art tells us a story or simply expresses an aesthetic truth or feeling. So together, everything that an artist does is, in a, is a form of activism. And behavior psychology tells us that we make decisions based on our emotions above all else. Don't get worried, I'm not gonna talk about psychology. <laughs> <laughs> art making and art viewing is very emotional for the viewer and for the artist. It impacts our emotions much more than statistics or facts will alone, to my great dismay. So the linkage <laughs> between Art and activism is inherent because artists will continue to gather information about the world and give it back to us in their way. Um, where art tips into the activist specifically is dictated by the artist, certainly through intentionality, but also the viewer and their interpretation of their reaction to the art. Uh, an artist may not anticipate that kind of impact um, it, she may have on someone and it may result in activism. Many years ago, a photographer, Mark Nelson, shared with me how influenced he was by the work of a public artist, Meryl Eucalys. Um, I shared uh, an interest in her work. Uh, one of her signature projects was to create her own artist residency in the New York uh, Department of Sanitation. Um, and through a performance project called Touch Sanitation Performance, she spent a year visiting every district of the sanitation office and offered to shake the hand of every one of the 8,500 sanitation workers who would accept that gesture from her. Um, Mark was so moved by this social aspect to public art that he created Glass Free Grounds, uh, a nonprofit effort that worked with school children and communities to remove a public hazard from parks, and it had many creative elements to it. Um, I also um, am delighted that the city of Houston has its first artist residency program uh, underway, and a lot of it was influenced by that uh, study of Merrill's work. Another example is uh, the work of Latoya Ruby Frazier, and she's a photographer, and she's been photogra photographing her hometown of Braddock, Pennsylvania for well over a decade, juxtaposing the decaying steel industry with the aging bodies of her own family members who worked in the mills. Um, that Braddock has become, had become a, a poster child of Rust Belt revitalization, and it was often promoted as a new frontier for urban pioneers. 
um, completely dismissing um, the population who lived there, um, not including them, consulting with them, or even acknowledging their existence, uh, most of whom are African-American residents. So Frazier's photographs are powerful in documenting the tactics used to squeeze a family off of its homestead there. Um, her artwork fights historic erasure and economic inequality, and it gave rise to the Braddock Inclusion Project, an effort to provide a voice for marginalized communities and improve the lives of residents that are in greatest need there. So I don't know if I have one defining aha moment for me that focused my thinking around activism or activist art. I'd say it's been more of an accreting of thoughts and knowledge and experiences. Um, Mel Chin's work has had a big influence on me, but way, way before that, um, I had this opportunity to live in the home um, of Seymour Knox Jr. of the Albright Knox Museum um, and former co-owner of the Buffalo Sabres hockey team. I, <laughs> um, and to do like menial, menial household tasks. Um, and it was the very first time I experienced uh, someone living with art, fine art in their home. Uh, I had grown up with the Albright Knox as my go-to museum and thought of art belonging in museums. Um, so Mr. Knox's experience of living with art, particularly a lot of Pablo Picasso pieces, including ceramics used as coin dishes, gave me a whole different perspective <laughs> of art. Um, and that came back to me later, uh, learning about Picasso and the piece Guernica that he created in response to the Spanish Civil War and its horrors. And it was used as a fundraiser, it was toured to raise money for Spanish war relief. Um, and is linked to modern human rights activism now. So it was pretty amazing to me that a painting could have so much impact. For me, art that softens your heart, moves you, shows you another way to be, is the most effective to me, and most likely to inspire me to act. Um, I think about photography's uh, importance to the environmental movement, or the movie Blood Diamond, are Kara Walker's monumental and masterful Sugar Sphinx. I go back and forth if art is a tool of social change or the inspiration for it. If activist art is about empowering individuals and communities, then they are in the community creating change. Does it matter how we characterize these things? Here in Houston, we have HGO. It's doing many wonderful things, commissioning art, operas about the immigrant experience. Of course, the work of Project Row Houses in community, Art League Houston, uplifting women artists and artists of color, and many more. I think about the work of Valerie Cassell Oliver at the Contemporary Arts Museum, and I could go on and on. Um, and right here in the fertile grounds of civil rights, social justice, art, and enlightenment, um, much activism focuses on a specific or particular solution to a problem, often very polarizing. Um, when art begins to dictate one way or one solution, it starts to feel a little more like advertising to me. And I certainly appreciate the use of a good tactical piece of art expression, especially if it gives me a giggle. But those tend to stay with me. Um, for not as long, and I'm not sure they move me or change my heart.
Um, when we use or produce art for instrumental benefits, we risk straying from its intrinsic value, and that's where the magic lives. One other example, on the Tijuana-San Diego border, the artist Ana Teresa Fernandez visually erased the train rails that serve as the divider between the two countries. She painted the rails sky blue to create a hole in the wall. The effect is arresting and acutely demonstrates an alternative reality. As a funder, from a funder's point of view, I think what funders can do best is create the conditions to support creativity and make room for more voices. We cannot make the art, the institutions can't make the art, the artists can make the art, but we can help them and work in partnership. Uh, Ford Foundation put, um, created Just Films to support their goals of erasing inequality, and that is through artist-driven documentary and emerging media projects. Bloomberg Philanthropies has the Public Art Challenge that puts artists at the forefront as civic leaders. I certainly look to policies and practices to reduce barriers and advance accessibility to grants and funding, as well as access to art. In City Hall, we have seen it as the people's house and make as much accommodation and opportunity for anybody to have a display, a representation of their culture, their organization. To have that in the City of Houston, City Hall, is so meaningful for communities. Um, and with skyrocketing costs of art school, I've been really concerned about the next generation of uh, artistic voices and where they'll come from. So these funding practices to remove barriers and look maybe outside the academy for artistic voices is something I'm, I'm trying to do. Um, the conversation in the public square that I think is desperately needed at this time um, is, is really looking at the, at the, the lives of women. The, social and economic factors that have presented talented women from achieving the same success as their male counterparts. Artists can certainly uplift the achievements of women, and I think about Amy Sherald's stunning portrait of Michelle Obama that has many dimensions to that project. Um, Houston doesn't have an abundance of statues to women, and by not an abundance, I mean there's one. Um, so we have some work to do on public art. Um, but I really think stories and artwork by women and of women, what it means and what it feel like, feels like to live life as a woman, um, will help everyone see women as fully human um, because we know what happens to populations when they aren't seen as fully human. Um, art lives in the territory of freedom and humanity and art can hold up an alternative vision of what could or should be. Thank you. Good evening. It's really a thrill to be here. Uh, completely thrilled to be, of course, in this, in this place, but also with these people. Thank you. Really, really beautiful and moving. Uh, I will just speak as fast as I can to get a few things out, but... Um, <laughs> Just to say, really, basically, hello, first of all. 
Art is about one thing, primarily. We're talking the performing arts tonight, if that's acceptable. Just like, just say, and it's about shared space. We are sharing this space. That is the point. Any performance is human beings sharing space. The project of the 21st century is how do we share space? How do we share the land, the water, the air, the resources, the planet. The cultural skill we just have underdeveloped is the culture of sharing, where you realize every single thing in your life is shared and nothing that you have ever belonged to you. It's a gift. And you're alive because a lot of people gave you a lot of gifts. All of us were given so many gifts. And what we do every day is give gifts. And therefore, we're gifted. And that understanding of nobody owns any of this, nobody owns any of this, all of this is shared, all of this is in trust, everything we have belongs to everyone we meet. And what the culture is of sharing, what the culture is of hospitality, what the culture is of recognition, what the culture is of realizing I do not know who I am until I've met you. And I've been waiting for you in my life. Patrick spoke about Mozart, which I'd, I'd love to do just for one second, because every single piece of music in Haydn and Mozart is written in sonata form. Sonata form is a very basic level of social inclusion. It is, every piece opens with idea A, which is having a wonderful day. <laughs> and then, irritatingly, idea B appears. <laughs> and idea A says, I don't need that, I'm just fine. And over the course of a sonata, Idea A has to completely reimagine itself to include idea B. And we have a complete transformation, and it's called a society. That gesture of social inclusion, Mozart and Haydn were part of the Masonic movement with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Their charge was to demonstrate equality in Europe, where there was, you know, the American Revolution had happened a few years before, but Europe was all autocracy. How can you demonstrate equality when you can't see equality anywhere? All you can see is inequality all around you. Mozart and Haydn invented the string quartet. And they said, these four people are equal, and we will now have a cultural form which demonstrates equality, and what it is when if one of these people left, there's no conversation. The integrity of the form depends on all voices represented. And then Mozart went another step farther and moved the quartet away from the abstract idea of a string quartet and put it in the opera. Mm -hmm. And suddenly four people who are of different social stations are singing as equals. Because they are equal. And the role of the artist is to imagine and demonstrate new structures of equality. Our country is predicated on equality. When do we see it? 
When do we feel it? When do we taste it? What does it taste like? We are so primitive. And the project is equality. Obviously, one of the ways in which we're equal, the most important way in which we're equal, is that we're all different. Nobody is replaceable. Every one of us is here to contribute something no one else could contribute. The nightmare is our fascist education system, which is based on standardized testing, which maximizes inequality because none of us are the same. And for all of us to give the same answer to the same question is a violation of our very deep human being. We hope you have a different answer to every question, please. <laughs> we need a different answer to every one of these questions, desperately. And we now have a system that penalizes the original idea and promotes conformity. That is appropriate to a fascist state, not to a democracy. Every single voice has to be empowered, deepened, and made articulate. Two things I just want to mention in that regard, one of which is, of course, the Greeks invented theater as the maintenance system for democracy. They carved a giant auditorium in the side of a mountain, and the most important thing was acoustical. One person's voice carried for 5,000 people. And it was about deep listening. And the power of the Greek theater, which was sung and danced and poetic and visual, so all the arts are gathered. If you could not afford a ticket, if you voted, you had to go. And if you couldn't afford a ticket, the Athenian City Council paid for it. Because if you voted, you had to go to the theater. <clears throat> Every citizen had to attend the theater. And very famously, the Greek democracy, which lasted for 12 minutes before the oligarchs took over, the wonderful thing about being a citizen was, you know, we know who citizens are. They were white men and no one else. And no one else could speak in the Senate. So the people who were left out were women, children, slaves, and foreigners. The name of every single Greek play is the name of a woman, a child, a slave, or a foreigner. The theater was the place where democracy actually occurred. And the Greeks said, we're not going to put in front of people feel-good plays. We're actually going to put together tragedy. You come to the theater, what we're going to show you is tragedy. We're going to show you what we're not proud of, what we didn't succeed at, and where we've actually failed, and where no one should be pleased with themselves. Suicides of kids, parents killing their children, how you treated the prisoners in the last war, and your total failure with immigrants. Those are the subjects of every Greek drama. 
the whole society becomes and has to be humbled. Because again, what we all share as human beings is not success. Some people are more successful and some people are less. What we all share is there just lots of things in our lives we're not proud of. What brings us together are the times when things aren't working. Whether it's the flood in Houston, whether it's a crisis in your family, it takes something you're not proud of and something that's a disaster to bring people together. Where finally one of your relatives stops lying all the time about everything. Where we had to get real. There was a moment we had to get real and face each other and talk to each other and come to do, together to do something we were incapable of doing before. Was it pleasant? No. Was it necessary? Yes. Do you know that at the time? No. You only gradually begin to understand over time. Which is why I don't worry about what anybody thinks of my show that night because none of us know what we're really living through ever. And what's valuable in our lives only becomes present much later. I want to just mention one project, if I could. Uh, Am I almost out of time? Oh, a minute. Well, that's not enough. (laughs) I'm going to take two. Is that allowed? (laughs) I'll be shorter later. But I just want to describe a current project, if I could, just because you've given eloquent examples. And I just want to give one more example. Uh, uh, and I, I, I did a play by Euripides called The Children of Heracles in eight countries. And it's about immigrants. It's about immigration. And it's a very harrowing play. Uh, and uh, it's about Hercules, you know, the strongest man in the world, who in fact died executing these horrifying labors that were imposed by a, a military dictator. And you get that the strongest man in the world is still a slave. He dies, and his kids are still alive. The dictator decides to go after his kids. The kids run with their grandmother and try and find refuge in another country. The dictator calls up every other country and says, you let these people in, and we declare war on you. These kids and their grandmother are turned away at country after country after country. Finally, Athens says, this is what we stand for. We are a refuge for people in need. This is who we are. This is our identity. Come, be at the sacred altar. You will be safe. The messenger shows up and says, okay, we're declaring war on you. And then the citizens of Athens have to have the real debate. Is the safety of these kids worth sending your kids into a war from which they won't come back? Doing the play, uh, I had several things going on. Most of it was around dinner. The first part of the evening was a conversation between people, immigrants and refugees without papers, and immigration judges, guards, security guards, border guards, people running detention centers, people up the chain at Homeland Security. 
Because when, when somebody comes here to America as a refugee, they have to tell one of three stories. Those are the only stories we accept. So they have to truly lie about what they've been through. Meanwhile, the immigration judge has a list of things that are mandated. So whatever he thinks of these people, it's actually only about these check marks. And so in this 45-minute interview where people's lives are at stake, both sides are lying. So my mission was to create in the theater a space where the place where the lie occurs every day, in the theater, in an art project, we can make a space for people to speak to each other honestly. So we started the evening with two dinners. Oh, I should mention also the kids. Every night we got about 27 kids from detention centers and they appeared in the show, in the theater. And so step one was getting them a good meal because that's what they didn't have. While their kids were eating, not pizza, but something good, the minister of the interior who said, you know, throughout all these immigrants was having dinner with two Nigerians living on the street. What it means to be human, what it means to break bread, what it means to just sit at a table together, just talk, is the first step of equality. And of course, it turns out the Minister of the Interior has two daughters and so do the Nigerians. And we start conversation. And then they go out and they speak in front of an audience together. And the conversation is honest of just human beings, minus the legalese, minus just people talking through experience. Then we have intermission and we do the play. The play has kids in it and the kids are just like the unaccompanied minors who are taken off the, the planes uh, you know, at Houston and Los Angeles airports. They're, we do not discuss their fate with them. They don't talk. Adults discuss what their future is going to be. So they're just sitting there quietly and they look at the audience all night. And Euripides doesn't give them anything to say. And then finally, when the Athenians decide to let them in, they leave the stage and they go through the audience shaking people's hand and say, thank you for letting me into your country. Super intense. In eight countries, so many people refused to let the kids touch their hand. It was very intense. Very, every night, very real. But what you're hearing in this play written 2,500 years ago is everything you heard in the first hour discussion, which is that we haven't gotten better at this we're still struggling, and a real case for humility, and un, un, unearned generosity, because you've earned generosity by being human, and because you're human, you've earned the right to show generosity, because that is the heart of your humanity. And at the end of the night, we have dinner during the whole performance, a lot of refugees are cooking. <laughs> and at the end of the evening, we have dinner for everybody. The last dinner of the night. And the kids are sitting at everybody's table. So the kids who you've seen all night, who you wouldn't know how to talk to at a bus stop, you're sitting and having dinner with them, and you could find out who they really are. And because it's an art project, we were able to get, for example, in Le Monde in Paris, the bio of every kid in 
a special three-page supplement to Le Monde. You know, because nobody knows how many kids are locked up tonight in these nightmare detention centers. Nobody will know who they are, what their story is, where they've come from, what they're hoping for. And step one is just let's put that forward. Let's just recognize people are not numbers, they're not statistics, they're people, and they're here. And so are we, or are we really here, or are we just faking it? And I'll just tell one last part of this. In Holland, the queen, of, the queen Beatrix, who's a fabulous woman, supporter of the arts, came uh, as her gesture of support. And she showed up, and, and the kids started the show that night. The, kids, the conversation was with the kids. And they said, well, the queen still isn't here yet. It's like everything we encounter in this country. Everyone says they support us, and then when the time comes, they don't show. Well, the queen actually was there. <laughs> she was super offended. <laughs> and at intermission, I had to go up to her loge where she was surrounded by courtiers and lawyers. And she said, these people simply have to understand they cannot come to Europe. They can't expect to stay here. They have to expect they are going to be returned. We're going to deport them. They have no business being here. <laughs> oh, dear. <sighs> and I thought, well, this will be a little intense later on in the evening. And then we went back in, and the second half of the performance began, and the play by Euripides began of the children of Heracles. And at the end of the performance, the queen said, I'm staying. Hmm. She spent three and a half hours taking pictures with every kid, all their families, everything. She was on the front page of every newspaper two days later. She just totally went there. But it takes some moment to have you just stop, because we all have these opinions, and if you stop and think about them for 10 more minutes, or a half hour, or 30 seconds, and say, how wrong can I be, and how, what am I afraid of, and why don't I just be human? In the best way, not the worst way. I just need a chance to like, realize I was just wrong, or I was angry, I was whatever, and I should just go in and do the thing that I've been avoiding and make something right that's not that hard to make right because I know what right is. Thank you. Thanks to all three of you for your opening <clears throat> remarks. I don't think we have anything to talk about. <laughs> I do want to pick up, I think all three of you alluded to this, and, and Peter, you used some key words, um, social inclusion, equality, conversation. And I didn't say it in my introduction, you spent, but you alluded to it, eight countries, you spent a lot of time in other places. Uh, Debbie, you work in a, in a field that's both local, connected national to state. I mean, it's an, inter, it's an intersection of the local, global in that sense. And then, Patrick, your work is taking you both 
through, through the art form itself, mm -hmm. through time and space, but also in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. This idea of being the public square, I, I think there's something you all have all talked about, the sense of inclusion, particularly in opera, but not opera alone, not the performing arts alone, where it becomes, in many people's eyes, an exclusionary, it's relegated to the parlor. Right, or relegated to the home of the patron, not to the, to the polis in general. So what I'd like to get you to thinking about together is, how are we doing on the public square part of art and activism? Um, how do we do, how is that happening in other places, like in Europe, or that progressive country that seems to be doing so much better than us? But are we doing okay? How are we doing in Houston? Mm -hmm. um, are, where are we kind of really doing well but at the same time, where are those cutting edges we need to be leading into a little bit more? So let's talk a little bit about the public square, and you can, this is open to the table. I think the, you know, it's the desire of Houston Grand Opera, and particularly its very engaged board, that we, we provide as much access to Houston Grand Opera to as many people as wanted. And, and you know, I think we're doing a good job of that. Can we do a lot better and provide more access? Yes, but I think for, for HDO's mission, it's very much about access. That, that, if, that we have to put the art out there and, and have it be available to Just everyone. a quick follow-up and then yeah. we'll move on. But you, so what are the tools that you have in your toolbox, so to speak? What are you using uh, and, and how has the opera changed or has it? Is this a continuum? Well, the oh, opera's the changed this year, but this is <laughs> yeah, well, we, thanks true. to a hurricane. But, yeah. but I, I think through, a, through HGO Co. and through a, all of this range of community programs and partnerships that are not necessarily expected for an opera company mm. that, that help <clears throat> to broaden the definition of what opera is, that opera is a musical storytelling medium that you can find something in its 450-year history to connect to, just as Peter's talking about Euripides and 2,000-year-old plays. There, you have to embrace something sometimes that makes you uncomfortable. And, and I think that is, uh, going out of your comfort zone is very important. Mm -hmm. On one measure, um you mentioned my involvement in the formation of the city's public art program, mm. which was adopted in 1999. Um, at that time, I could tell you that it was a real challenge dealing with some of the, the city you know, departments. They were unsure, they were worried about embarrassment, controversy, everything. Comfort zone. Absolutely, <laughs> and so now coming back into this position recently, um, I have city department staff beating down my door to engage with the art program and have artists work with them. And it's really our biggest challenge is trying to accommodate the demand of, um, of the city staff, the elected officials. Um, so that's kind of, I think, one great success. I think the challenge that I see in Houston is because of our uh, vast, vast geography is that we're still very concentrated in the inner core of where most of the art is happening and being created. And those opportunities, the realities of people's lives, of traffic and childcare and yeah. transportation. We it, find that a lot. It doesn't yeah. make it easy, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that that's something where our Houston 
based artists who understand those realities maybe need to be thinking about, okay, how do we solve for that? We, we have our performances at the Miller Outdoor Theater and at the Woodlands, but we need to do much more of going to people mm -hmm. rather than expecting everyone to come downtown. Oh, we, sure. We, we find that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'll get to Peter in a second. It's the, uh, as this city has grown, I, I think that the elasticity of Houston is pretty amazing, but Sugar Land right now has just built a, you know, a, a multi-thousand mm -hmm. seat uh, performing arts center or a multi-use yeah. purpose center for all kinds of things. Uh, artist, uh, I have a friend that lives in, in West Houston, way out on the west side. So there, there is art, um, but sometimes we get parochial though, do mm -hmm. we not? Do we not think that it's in my neighborhood or it's all inside the loop? But really, it's really happening every day all over. Maybe it's a question of how we name it, how do we call it out, how do we tell that story in a larger way? Is that, is that part of our opportunity here in this city, in this Absolutely. environment? Absolutely. Houston as a whole has amazing art, artists, and we definitely could lift that up. That awareness globally, I think, is not where I think it should be right now. Everyone should know about the art that's happening mm -hmm. in Houston. Mm -hmm. Peter, what do you think about art in the public square and the conversations? Well, I think, you know, again, it's very clear what neighborhoods money is spending and what neighborhoods nobody spent any money in. What's a nice neighborhood? What's not a nice neighborhood? Why is that? How come Beverly Hills looks like that? And how come East LA looks like that? City Council put a lot of money and every week trims, trims the bushes. And one of the big things for us in the LA Festival was remapping culturally the city. And we decided after the LA uprising, you know, in the 90s, to put a five-week festival at Lemurk Park, five blocks from where the first fires were lit in the uprising, a place that most people are terrified to go to. And, you know, we said, no, no, we're going to make a big festival down here. So we went to scope it out, and guess what? There was trash everywhere. Why? There was no trash, regular trash pickups. Mm. The light bulbs were all burned out. The park had never been landscaped. The fountain was never turned on. People living in that part of the city weren't getting basic city services, let alone art projects. So for me, it's always, you know, we could, as an arts festival, go to the city council and say, pick up the trash, turn on the lights, make the fountain go on, and landscape the park. You know, but, but again and again, the arts are an important way to call people's attention to where equality and inequality are operating and how they're operating. And we have a, a very cool way of being able to not just point fingers, but actually create a positive uh, uh, outcome. Uh, and to see that equally, that equal investment is made across the city. And I think that's one of the mm -hmm. crucial, crucial questions. And it's the same question in Europe. Vienna, all the money is spent in the first district. Mm. Vienna has the biggest cultural program of any city in Europe, but it's all spent in the first district. And what is it when you start to actually spend money where all these other people live? And where people whose languages you don't speak and people who you don't know how to have dinner with and people who you're awkward in front of and yet they're people, they're equal, they're equal to you. And of course it never occurs to us they're equal to us. We're so not used to thinking of people as equal and people's needs as equal. And everything you want for your daughter, it doesn't occur to you that this other person wants the same thing for their daughter, like of course, and should have it. So it's that, it's, 
it's moving across the landscape. And I would just also emphasize that the cultural treasures are the Thai temple, or are, you know, all of these places, you know, the Armenian Orthodox Church that nobody's been in, and what it is to engage that in the cultural network and to really make the cultural network reach across cultures in powerful and meaningful ways that establish equality. Mm-hmm. It's particularly true of arts education, isn't it? Because it's so inequitable. There'll be schools that have orchestras and bands and music theory class that are a mile from a school that has to choose between a security guard and a nurse. Right. And no arts programs at all. So that inequity is really... And in the state of California, we set that up. We, in 1984, the legislature began meeting to remove schools from certain neighborhoods and replace them with prisons. And we now have the largest prison system of any society in the history of the world in the state of California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And schools have been eviscerated. And I would just say, again, I just think of an art project as basically, how are you going to talk to your dad? Mm-hmm. How are you going to say something to dad that he doesn't want to hear? You have to say it with a lot of love. <laughs> and art is about skill. The word art means skill. And everything that we're trying to do is going to have to be done skillfully. You can't hold a sign and scream at somebody. You've actually got to find a skillful way in which we move forward together. Not, I'm going to move forward against you. Because oppositional thinking, it is too late in history for oppositional thinking. If you are still thinking oppositionally, you have missed the boat. Until everybody's in your boat, your boat will not sail. (laughs) And that is the question of really, again, creating and affirming what shared space means. And at what point we can be in solidarity, what are the forms solidarity might take. And each of us doesn't represent a single community. I I ask my students to write down the first day of class a list of communities they belong to and stop at 100 and realize how diverse every one of us is. And nobody's one thing, or ever will be one thing. And can we begin to recognize how rich, what a rich, rich world, because every human being brings a world with them, we're living in. I want to come back to this oppositional thinking. You know, I can't help but work at the Rothko Chapel and be somewhat engaged in that conversation every single day. A lot of you all know that Barnett Newman's iconic uh, broken obelisk uh, was at one time to be a gift to the city from the Demon Elves. And it had one requirement because it was in 1968, right after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, that a plaque or some commemoration would be there at the sculpture lifting up his ministry and service and the legacy of his life, and the city of Houston turned it down because of that demarcation. So when you're out on the plaza tonight, I invite all of you to go and see. It's just that little marker that the city found, the leadership at the time said, we weren't ready for that. It was too controversial. It was too much in the, wow. in the, uh, the, the race of the day, in a way, you know? And so I think about oppositional thinking, and I think a lot about, um, Debbie, on one hand, there seems to be this rush but on the other hand, we live in a time when public work is pulled out of galleries, commissions are lost, uh, things are controversial, people picket opera. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of, a, this goes back to your story. Mm-hmm. 
so I'm, 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 I'm in that point where, yeah, it's not necessarily new, but on the other hand, we seem to be in a, in a moment of a very pluralistic environment that we live in with so many different understandings of public yeah. and what is right and what should be done. How do we navigate? How do you all navigate these waters to try to continue to keep true to that point of equity, openness, yeah. conversation, hospitality? You know, Peter brought up the right word. It's love, <clears throat> but that's, that's very hard. I mean, look, we're in this cultural moment where people think that if they like something, it's good. And if they don't like it, it's bad art. I'm speaking in artistic mm -hmm. terms mm -hmm. solely. And that's simply not true. That is, op that is, to me, the definition of oppositional thinking. I didn't like that opera, so it wasn't, must not have been good. That's not necessarily... That's, that's well, not if you're going through life based on what you think, yeah. what you like and what you don't like, you've missed that God created a lot of people you don't like. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Like, very few things were set up based on what you like. Yeah. And you, maybe that you haven't noticed that yet? Yeah, That, like, what you like was not included in what anything that, that's like, right. you're surrounded with? That's right. So just get over that, because yeah. that's just not an interesting filter. But as the leader of an organization, mm -hmm. I can't say, just get over it. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, if your resume to, is current, you're well, yeah, yeah. well, but I have to engage, the, I, and, and want to, not have to. Right. I, I engage in as many conversations as possible to open up that mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. and open up my own thinking too. Sure. Yeah. For me, one of the most important projects was just democratizing the decision process. So yeah. in yeah. the Los Angeles yeah. festivals, they were curated by 350 people. Yeah. So it wasn't what I liked mm -hmm. or what I was interested in. It was, if it's interesting to somebody, we should have it. It was, you know, and people and ways of thinking and life experiences I've never had or would ever recognize but of course, until you ask, and until you yeah. give from every neighborhood in the city equal voices, and really just say, what is important to these people? It's not important to me, and turns out I was wrong. Mm. It is mm -hmm. important. I didn't know that till I had to go to something that I was in my program, but I would never have programmed. Never have done. And, and mm -hmm. so that was a very, very powerful thing, and I, I have to say, I think city council works the same way. I mean, it's just like, you know, you know, it's not a mystery. It is actually called democracy, and if you give it a chance, it's a great idea. Mm -hmm. De Debbie, what do you, you're at that intersection every day. Uh, well, I make a lot of mistakes. Um, I try hard not to make the same mistake twice. And we do, uh, we take, we try to act to, to do stuff. Um, and sometimes we don't have all the information. Um, I know we need to have more conversations. The more we can communicate with people and listen mm -hmm. and, and really um, try to understand other people's perspective, the better the chance that we get it right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, days are full, deadlines are coming. It, it, it's hard, it is a challenge often to make time and space for those conversations, but when we do it, it's, it's ultimately mm -hmm. the only way. Um, Every, everything about being a conductor and director is about listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's our job. You, just a pick up I, that word like I like I like I like that word like. um, I keep thinking about maybe it's trite but maybe it's deep art for art's sake in the sense of democracy in a sense of a society that's healthy mm -hmm. and well in the sense that to be able to be I think it's mature enough to be able to say I may not like 
this particular piece of work, or I may not like that artist, or I may not, but I understand that it is important for that piece of work. I understand for the appropriation for public art. I understand, so there's that uh, a little different existential you know, involvement in that question of like. Where are we today in the sense of, in this country, um, being able to affirm the importance for art for art's sake as part of a democracy that, is, that deserves adequate funding, adequate support, places in the school, all these public places that then make real the testament that I really support the arts. I think if the audience and the art form is, are mirrors of each other, you can make that case. And if they're not, if it's inequitable, if it's, and then there's not a real deep dive into making it equitable, it's very hard to make that case. That would be my it, it's It's there. Um, it's interesting that the arts is a very abstract term, yeah. I think, to a lot of people. And when you look at what kinds of projects and programs have been funded with public dollars in communities and separate it from the arts that, oh, you mean our dance? Our, our mm -hmm. art, our poetry? Mm -hmm. No, no, we want that. Um, and I think for parents in the schools, parents know that it's good for their kids. You don't have to convince a parent. Um, I think that they, um, you look at the charters, like high-performing charters have all the best attributes of private school, because people know it's, it's good for mm. the kids, it works. So there's not a, there's not a lack of um, will on the parts of parents, and I think people who are experiencing the art, that the challenge is when we get out of what it means for us to invest in it just like other public goods. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there, there is a lot of work to do around that conversation of what the arts actually means. Yeah. There are I, a lot I, of audiences. And, mm -hmm. and, and again, just, I mean, I do a lot of stuff that is extremely vivid and kind of in your face <laughs> because controversy is the whole point. <laughs> I mean, unless there's a conversation, we haven't accomplished anything. Right. Everyone just leaves saying, oh, that was nice. And then you forgot everything by the time you find your car. You know, it has to be something you can't swallow, which three months later, you're saying, you know that thing? And it just keeps going. And we're here not to, I mean, artists, nobody has to vote for us. Nobody has to like me. It's okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do need to make something that insists on a, dis a discussion. And at the same time, I have to really defend the right of useless art to exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because this sickening society where everything has to be useful, which is able to empty, empty mental hospitals and put people who are quote-unquote not useful to a degraded existence on a sidewalk, is unspeakable. Because every human being has to be loved, not because they're useful, but because they're human. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, this nightmare of what is useful and what is not useful, and we're going to fund the useful and not the unuseful, and I'm sorry, this is useless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we need to actually understand there's a larger and deeper purpose to all of it. Right. I couldn't agree more. I think we've done it to ourselves. 
as a maybe relic of the culture wars that we wanted to demonstrate the utility of the arts, its instrumental benefits right. and learning mm -hmm. and economic development. Um, and that pendulum feels like it really swung one way. Um, and I kind of feel like it's scooching itself back uh, now to where we do talk about the intrinsic value a lot more. Mm -hmm. I think we'll, uh, Ashley, just want to check. Time for some questions of the audience. We have a, I, I want to make sure we bring in it. Right. I do want to say, as we get mics ready and see if you all have questions, you know, I think for those of us who are part of the arts and culture fabric of, a, of this city, uh, one of my favorites is the hot tax. I don't know how it works in other communities, the hotel occupancy have to tax. Go. She has to go now, but I just have to, since I got the mic for one second. But I think it, it raises sometimes that utilitarian question, uh, coming back to vocation. And uh, you know, what is vocation as opposed to profession? And there's other words we use, and that is, um, our job at the Rothko Chapel is not to uh, promote tourism, per se. Our job is not to fill beds downtown, which the tax works off. However, as a collaborative partner in all that, yes, we're part of it. But I think it is always that dialogue and conversation so that I res you come to mutual respect of what each of our vocations and our purposes are, and then we combine them together. But I think that's part of that healthy conversation in the community. And I, I agree with you, those pendulums swing back and forth. So we'll just have to see where it's swinging in, you know, in the days ahead. Yeah, I mean, we sold tickets to Wagner's Ring Cycle to almost every state in the union but that's not the reason we did the ring. We did the ring right. because it's the greatest work of art in right. our medium. There you go. So <clears throat> you can't quantify it in terms of hotel rooms. Sure, sure. You know. Let's see if we've got, do we have some questions? We, um, if you'll just raise your hand. Here's one right here. Let me start see. here Are in the bring, front. We're bringing her a mic. Bring her a mic right down here on the front, on the aisle, over here in the plaid cape. How are you thinking about what seems to be a hot topic now, artist behavior and their work. If you've misbehaved, we pull you out of the movie. If you misbehave, we take your art out of the gallery. I've been thinking about that myself and I'm still in a quandary about it. What it how are you all thinking about that? Back to Wagner. Yeah. You yeah. started it. Yeah, I started it. Well, uh, he started it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, artists, artists are citizens too, and, and they, with, their, with the forum of their fame, they absolutely have a right to, to say what they feel, and uh, politically, socially. Um, but, you know, those, those statements are not without consequence if 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 it's not if it's controversial but if it's against the mission of the people who are paying for whatever their whatever movie they're in or something i mean it's a it's a very complex question because you can't can't and shouldn't and mustn't edit people's behavior so it's it's be curious to hear what my colleagues think about that i i think it's it's a hard question it I don't is. want to be edited. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in the spaces where people have benefited professionally from particularly abusive, exploitive behavior, 
there is a justice. Oh, that's unacceptable. That's yeah, right. That's, there that's, is an so. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't see a slippery slope to other you know voicing of opinions lifestyle. I I don't see that at all because I see there's a big difference. Right. So right. I think that when people um, face the consequences of their act their actions professionally, um, it's a start. I agree with that. We'll let that stand. Uh, there's a question right down here in the front, and then I'll come over here. I saw this hand, and then I see another one over there. So right here, uh, second row, gray shirt. There's also one. Right here. There you go. I'd like to thank the panelists for sharing their insights. This was really an incredible uh, experience tonight. Thank you very much. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, experience uh, Clemenza de Tito at Salzburg uh, last summer. Uh, it was an incredibly moving production. Um, and I believe it's still on Medici TV. Is it not being streamed? And everyone here should watch it. It really is incredible. I do have a question. Could you and Peter, both you and Patrick, perhaps give us some insight into the creative process in reimagining these works. How do you approach it? How do you go through this? Uh, could you just share a few insights on that? Mm -hmm. Peter? Wow. You know, again, I think I mentioned Mozart devoted his life to imagining the next Europe and the next possibility for human beings. And at the end of his life, he needed money desperately. He was already sick with the, the illness that would kill him in three months and uh, and he he couldn't support his family and so he needed a commission and they came and said we're gonna give you the commission to write the opera for the coronation of the new emperor and he spent his whole life saying no more emperors and his last work had to praise an emperor so that was so painful for him so I just rewrote the piece <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> Mozart, Mozart did not write the Restatees of Clemenza right. de Tito. And he so didn't. He really farmed it out. So I yeah. just said, okay, let's throw out the stuff Mozart himself yeah. despised. And I rewrote the piece so it was what Mozart, it, it, it was in the line of Mozart's previous work. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the other main thing for me was, uh, I think one of the most moving things in these last few years, while certain parts of the world have turned so virulent and so intolerant, has been each of these uh, attacks in Europe, uh, in Paris, in Brussels, in Manchester, in Berlin, where thousands of people came into the streets mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with candles and flowers and photographs and said, we will not respond to this violence with more violence. We will not continue the war on terror because this is a catastrophe for everyone. And there needs to now be another type of dialogue, another type of understanding, because nobody is safe now. And the militarization of the planet has been a disaster. And so I wanted to put that on stage with a soundtrack by Mozart, who, whose music is dedicated to reconciliation. And, and, and we staged that to the C minor mass, yeah. which was yeah. you know, top tier Mozart as opposed to the stuff he's writing in a hurry in the last weeks of his life. And so, but anyway, just to say now, I'm about to go to Amsterdam and do the production again. 
and I will that it'll go on in May, and um, and I'm editing the video that will be available uh -huh. as a DVD, so you will get to see that. I promise. But it is just again, I'm just trying to say, you look at the world now, and you want to look at the things that you regret, but you also want to look at the things that you are so hopeful for, mm -hmm. and you want to expand that space of hope. And you want to expand that space of solidarity. You want to expand that space of generosity. And that's what we get to do in the arts. A great opera production will illuminate what a composer put there. Both director and conductor have to do that. That's their main task. But it will also bring it into a relevant space for 2018. Those are the, those are, that's what a great opera production has to do, in my view. Thank you. I've got a question over here, and I want to make sure this you understand. sort of in the center there. Yeah, there's a couple of questions yeah. over there, too. So let's get this one over here, okay. and then we'll move over. Thank you. I would like to uh, just make a statement about the Broken Obelisk, which was purchased by John Demonell in the early 1970s in order to protest against the racist uh, attitudes that were so prevalent in Houston. He never tolerated racism. He fought against it in every way he could. And the Rothko Chapel where you're sitting is his dream of a chapel where conversation among all religions and all peoples could take place. Right. So again, thank I thank you. him thank for you. that grand gesture of buying the sculpture himself. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, we got time for a couple more questions. We'll do one in the back center. Uh, can we get a mic over here? Let's see, uh, right, young woman, right there in the center with her hand up. <laughs> okay, now you have to go through the chairs. And Thank you. Um, hi, uh, my question is, what are some things that smaller local artists can do to get more directly involved with what you guys are doing for the community and for the arts? Come and talk to us. <laughs> Seriously. I, I mean, I love nothing more than cool. talking to fellow artists, so call me this week. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just um, recently, uh, with Houston Arts Alliance, we've reimagined the grant-making program there, mm -hmm. and there are some really um, fun, I think, quick, quick delivery grant opportunities to test mm -hmm. ideas. Uh, four times a year. It's, it's not a lot of money, but it is really meant to be able to sort of be that sort of rapid prototyping approach. So um, the folks at Houston Arts Alliance can talk to you about mm -hmm. it. I can talk to you about it. Um, but it would be, it's really, it's intended to spark creativity. And we have to reinvent democracy at the grassroots, literally. So any small project is actually important to mm -hmm. reseeding. Absolutely. Reseeding the whole society. And can I just say, please work with your friends, and please, please, please work with your enemies. <laughs> All right. Um, nice. We got time for one more question. Let's see. There's one in the back center also, and that's going to have to be our last. We get closing remarks. We're going to have time for more conversation after the panel. Um, actually, my question is a little bit like yours. So I'm a performer, and one of the struggles I often feel is how to actually create real change because I can do my part, I can, you know, be a good human, raise good humans, I can, you know, hope to inspire and heal people by singing, but 
<clears throat> when it comes down to it, I'm an instrument. I'm hired, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't get to choose. I don't get to be the director. I don't get to choreograph. I don't get to choose. I mean, I, I, mean, I am. There are two pieces I'm doing, one on gun violence and one on immigration. But most of the time, I'm hired to sing X part. So I struggle with the want and desire to actually create change, to reach people, because of course I can't reach everybody. I'm hired to go sing in X city, but they aren't going to invite, you know, those schools on the other side of town. And I often say to organizations, I wish you'd let me go do a class, you know, at one of your universities, but they never talk to each other because there's no money in it. Mm -hmm. And so it all comes down to money and using your time as they want to use your time. So I really struggle with sure. how to create change if you're an instrument in this business. It sounds like you're doing a great deal, however, I must say. Very, but, yeah. yeah, I would just say totally, totally, totally self-empower. You know, do not believe the <laughs> corporate line for one second. It's total, 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 total. I have lots of words for it, but I, <laughs> just, just, I just have to say really, a, if you're involved in the performing arts, stop worrying about what's on stage. Hmm. Because, as Patrick said, it's a mirror. And excuse me, what is in the audience is totally inadequate for any proper mirror of our society. So what I'm telling everybody is spend three quarters of your time with who's in the audience. Mm -hmm. That's the real work now. Is we actually need to, to for democracy to work, it's just like your family. You know, your sister who hasn't spoken to you in 10 years, it's gonna take something special for her to feel it's worth saying something and that someone will hear her. Like to actually have democracy be representative is a lot of work. It doesn't happen by itself. Certain people seize the microphone and will never let it go and other people will never ever tell us what they're really thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. So what it is is democracy is full-time work to actually just get the mirror to function, the equal yeah. sign to be an equals, both sides of the equation balance. That's like the work of the history of math, it's also the history of the performing arts. You have to make sure that who's in front matches who's on stage, right. and back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and both sides have to get deeper, more accountable, more representative, and more engaged in real dialogue. Debbie, any? Close. No, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, no. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that um, as we wrap up this evening, I think arts is like religion, which is like every mm -hmm. sector of society. We make casts. So we have the big five or we have the little, you know, the small company or whatever. And I, what I really appreciate about tonight is the sense of inclusion. Now, I was thinking about this last question. Um, I have a son who, we have a son who's a musician, and I, I always wonder what his future is going to be, but I just tell him, keep on playing, man. Yeah. Just keep on playing, because it brings you joy. And, you know, then maybe volunteer your time and play at a senior center, or old, you know, whatever it is, or a neighborhood center, or whatever, because you never know who you'll be touched by mm -hmm. in addition to who you may touch, which then opens up other possibilities. And I think it's somewhat, uh, we use, I use the word vocation intentionally because I think that's different than profession. Yeah. And sort of coming back to that core that got you into it in the beginning. And sometimes it's finding again 
decade after decade, year after year. But uh, that's a very good question to kind of keep us focused on this piece, though. It's all political. You know, <laughs> everything is about politics. Uh, uh, even getting cereal at the grocery store, I realized the other day when my wife was about politics, how much sugar would be allowed in that box of cereal. So we had our, our uh, moment of discussion and trying to come up with a compromise at work. But we're here about the arts. We're about activism. We're about making arts part of the fabric of a community. And we know that there are countervailing forces. You've named some of those tonight. Mm -hmm. So in closing, uh, uh, closing remarks from each of you very quick, what action should we take to make sure that that is part of our culture, whether it's in our neighborhood, in the city of Houston, the state of Texas, in the whole world, the universe. <laughs> Small question. Small yes. question. Yeah. Go ahead, Patrick. I would say <clears throat> be the little girl at the painting in the mm. Rothko. It's everything. Uh, take someone who doesn't have the means to an artistic event. Uh, help enable it in someone else if you have the means. And, and engage as often as you can in something that you're absolutely certain you're not going to like. Hmm. Thank you. Um, well, I, not to disappoint you, which I don't want to do, but I don't know if I can suggest one thing, because it so much depends um, on where people are themselves and what kind of change they're hoping to make. But I can tell you, for me, I promise I'll uh, be open use my position, my power to advance um, and live the values of equity and inclusion that I hold and be curious um, and try and keep my heart and my mind open and vote. <laughs> ah, thank you. Indeed. Uh, just to keep going with um, the guy, Mr. <laughs> Rothko, uh, just it's deep listening, it's deep looking. It's really deep listening, it's really deep looking. And seeing what's there and seeing what's not there and then looking again and seeing what's there and then seeing what's not there and looking again and seeing what's there and looking again and seeing what's not there. If when you're talking to somebody you can only hear what they are saying to you, you have no idea what they're really saying to you because most people are never saying to you what they actually mean. And so we're talking about deep listening. If you're just looking at things for what they look like and just what they sound like, Mr. Rothko is the example of please look deeper, please listen more profoundly, because if you're looking for light, then look deep into the darkness. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much. I also want to lift up, Peter, really where you ended, which is Mark Rothko, John and Dominique D. Manil, people like the Newmans, all the people that created this mm -hmm. work of art, this place of engagement, because I think we have honored them tonight with this conversation. Thank you all for being part of it. And may I just add, just share that same honoring with the poorest people in the city, with people who are living in conditions that are unbelievably degraded, and people whose actually are holding humanity intact in spite of everything. Mm -hmm. And please, let's honor them in the same sentence 
not just the well-known and not just the people who are able to do everything they dreamed of, but the people who are not able to do everything they dream of and keep dreaming. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, we invite you to the plaza for a reception, a continued conversation. And what I'd ask you to do, if you could hold your seats for just a second, the four of us, let us exit over here oh just God. for, uh, uh, just so we don't get Security bumping into, detail. no, don't want to bump into these paintings. <laughs> and then we'll pick it up again on the, uh, the plaza. Thanks again for coming. Awesome.